Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with Jess Herzog. Jess is the e-commerce manager for Chief Enterprises. Chief Enterprises designs, manufactures, and distributes electromechanical and power systems for the on and off-road automotive industries. Jess is a digital native, and she's only ever worked in the e-commerce and digital, and she's only ever worked in the B2B space. So this absolutely reflects the rise of digital natives working in B2B e-commerce today, and I think you're going to learn a ton. Welcome to B2B Commerce Corner. Commerce Corner is a sub-series of the e-commerce edge podcast discussing all things B2B commerce through the lens of agencies, consultants, merchants, and more. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I have another cracking guest lined up for you today. I have Jessica Herzog on the pod today. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's awesome to have you along for the ride today. And you have been working. This is part of our B2B sub-series of the podcast. And as I mentioned off-air, it has proved to be far more popular than I could have ever imagined it to be. And you are currently e-commerce manager at Chief Enterprises out of the greater Chicago area. You didn't start there. You started, you've been with the business for a long time now, and you started out as a marketing intern and have worked your way right up to the top of the business from an e-commerce perspective. Chief, as I understand it, and correct me, completely correct me if I'm wrong here, but you guys are a manufacturer, a wholesaler, and distributor on and off-road industrial supply. So supplying electro, well, designing, manufacturing, and supplying electromechanical components of value-added services throughout North America for the on and off-road industries. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. So we were the sole North American supplier of Bosch connector parts, which kind of makes us a little bit different than other distributors that you might see out there. But you said it just exactly right. Like we distribute, we source these parts, but we also have that engineering and manufacturing capability in-house where we can make custom parts as well. So like custom assemblies. So you're taking Correct. these, yep. you're taking some off the shelf components, but then you're also combining those together and engineering them together into a whole functional component. Exactly. Yep. And you guys, are you guys pure B2B, meaning you're selling to, you're selling to the industry. So you're selling to people who manufacture buggies and vehicles and who, who knows whatever else. Maybe you can go into a little bit of who your target demo is. Are you pure B2B or are you also direct to consumer as well? Yeah, I would say we're majority B2B. When we're going out trying to find new clients, our sales team is focusing on those manufacturers. We're trying to design in our products at the engineering level, but we also service some aftermarket. Through our e-commerce channel, we'll sell lower volume to the aftermarket, so a little bit B2C. But I would say our target demographic would be manufacturers or OEMs of these machines, so agricultural equipment, construction equipment, electric vehicles, things of that nature. And you guys have been around for a long time. You, you, you've been around since just before I graduated from high school. So you've been around since 1991, and the company yes. was founded by a father and son engineering duo. And mm -hmm. so you guys have been around for a long time. I'm guessing that e-commerce was not one of your sales channels in 1991. So when did the business add e-commerce? And if you were to look at the sum total of your revenues, and I don't expect you to give me exact numbers here, but as a percentage of revenue, how much today is done through e-com versus, say, field sales? 
Yes. To answer your first question, we definitely did not start off with an e-commerce channel. We are mostly, and we still are today, majority outside sales. And more recently, so we've had an e-commerce platform for a while, I would say about 10 years, but that was, it was always an afterthought. And I mentioned earlier that we do some aftermarket sales and it was that it was like to offload some work from customer service who had to work with customers that are looking for one to two parts. So we would just load SKUs on there and say, hey, just buy it online. But it, there was no investment in it, no real thought behind it. And more recently, like when the pandemic hit, which I assume and imagine there's a lot of companies out there like us that were like, hey, we have to have something that's better than what we have when the pandemic hit. So we decided to invest in it and spend some more attention and time and effort in it. And now it's about 1% of our sales. So still growing, but we do definitely see it as the next big channel next to our outside sales. And so it's about 1% of sales today. Now, how long have you guys been on NetSuite as your ERP? Because I, I understand you're running SCA, Sweet Commerce Advanced. I've done multiple projects in my previous life, working agency side with SCA projects. And 99% of the time, it's all, in fact, I don't think I've ever seen a case where somebody's running SCA and not running NetSuite as their mm -hmm. E. So I'm assuming yeah. you're running NetSuite and then you've got your SCA front end, which is acting as your B2B e-commerce site. Yes. Yeah, so we've been on NetSuite for, I think it's, 13 years now, and we went through all of the platforms. So we used to be on Site Builder. Then we went to the and we're actually now on just Sweet Commerce, the out of the box kind of more templated version of it. So we've been on that for the majority, the whole time that we've been with NetSuite. Yeah, look, and it's so interesting because I think that Sweet Commerce can be a great option for. B2B brands that are on NetSuite. It's not the kind of platform where you just implement the Sweet Commerce front end without having the NetSuite back end because it's a semi-native product. I'm sure Sweet Commerce Advanced was an acquired product and then they integrated it back into the core mm -hmm. of, of NetSuite. There are definitely some let's say merchandising limitations in sweet commerce mm -hmm. advance you couldn't compare it to something like a big commerce or a shopify or a vtex or any of the any of the really the cloud platforms that are out there that are dedicated to e-commerce you can't really compare it because it's it leverages so much native NetSuite functionality from kits to bundles to manufacturing to the whole, especially if you're using NetSuite WMS as well, whether that be light or the WMS advanced. And so it's, it really is so tightly coupled with NetSuite that you see the value if you're running NetSuite and that it's easier to maintain product information because you've already got to have a certain amount of product information in NetSuite anyway to be able to sell the product and then using SEA or even heaven forbid site builder, you can add a whole <laughs> lot more content uh, around yes. the product that you are not able to easily support just with NetSuite on its own. So when you add the sweet commerce module to NetSuite, it opens up a whole bunch more functionality. It adds a bunch more native custom fields to a product that is specifically surfaced through the web front end. So when you guys, were you with the business when they first implemented site builder and implemented e-commerce for the first time? I was not. I was not there when they we did the switch to NetSuite and got the website, but I did experience it from site builder to SCA and then SCA back to SC. But to your earlier point, I totally agree. Having NetSuite and using Sweet Commerce, we don't have to worry about uh, a PIM per se. So our product data is in our ERP. That's our one source of truth. And I find that's 
the biggest advantage of using SuiteCommerce because we use NetSuite. That's not to say that there's other limitations with SuiteCommerce. There's a lot of, it takes a lot of customization to get what you want. But with that being said, you can really customize it to get whatever you want, just how much development work you want to put into it. But yeah, it's been great to have that seamless connection between ERP and the front end for sure. Simplifies the stack massively when yes. you don't have to have a have to have a separate PIM, a separate CDP, separate marketing automation, separate all, all the different components. If you can have them all in one modular platform and including CRM, so now all of a sudden, whether it be your sales team is securing that ninety nine percent of transactions and they're going directly into Netsuite, or maybe they're going into Netsuite via EDI, and then you've obviously got your web transactions. They all go against the same account and all mm. of that information, including all of the request for quote and all of the customer service aspects and ticketing and all that stuff is all against that single account in NetSuite CRM. And I personally think NetSuite CRM is about the best there is, but definitely one of the best in the world from a CRM perspective. So I can see the advantages. I guess the one challenge that I've witnessed, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this, one challenge that I've seen people have when they're running Suite Commerce or SEA is that there's not nearly as many agencies that specialize in Suite Commerce as the majors, right? The major yes. SaaS platforms, the Adobe commerces of the world, there's just not as many agencies that have that deep specialization. And mm -hmm. therefore, it can be hard to find someone who can do all that custom coding without, especially if you don't want to go back directly to NetSuite. And I never recommend someone go direct to NetSuite. I recommend they mm -mm. work with NetSuite partners for both the NetSuite ERP piece and the e-commerce piece. Have you guys struggled to find an agency partner that can keep up with what you guys want to do? I think we've been very fortunate. We were paired with a great implementation partner. I'll give them a shout out. Go Virtual Office, they're out of Wisconsin. So they're great for back-end technical projects. And then to your point about finding someone, when I was going through the, the website design, I really wanted to find someone that had NetSuite experience because I'm like, yeah, you can design me a great website, but to your point, like it's such a niche program. Like I need to be able to implement that and work with it seamlessly in the back-end and the CRM side. So I really need someone that understands NetSuite. I did a long Search and I ended up finding Tavano Team. So they are a total like digital marketing agency as well as an expert in NetSuite. So they've got NetSuite developers. So I found that was a great partner to have, have that digital marketing experience, but also have NetSuite experience as well. And how have you found, oftentimes when I'm going in and I'm consulting to B2B brands that are either doing e-commerce for the very first time or like you guys, when COVID hit, they went, oh my God, we are not ready we are not ready to shift 80 to 90% of our transactions to our existing e-commerce site. It would fall over or it doesn't have all the information. It doesn't have the yes. tech sheets. It doesn't have all the things that we need to be. When a salesperson goes out, they have a whole lot of information in their head. Plus they have oftentimes have a lot of physical collateral that they can hand over. And if you don't have the equivalent of that in your e-commerce website, it makes it really hard to effectively transition customers and get buy-in to your new e-commerce solution. And so for you guys, how did you find the adoption from the sales team? Because I find that oftentimes, really, in order to get buy-in with the customer, you have to get buy-in from the sales team. Because without that, yes. you know, they're going to be the ones that are really onboarding the customer. They're going to be the ones that are holding the customer's hand. They're going to be the ones that present the value of especially replenishment ordering through an e-commerce website. So how have you gone, because I'm guessing it's your job to evangelize e-commerce as the e-commerce manager. You're like the internal zealot for digital channels. You have to be. Has it been hard to get the sales team on board with the benefits of digital channels? 
Yes. <laughs> it's been a challenge and it's an ongoing challenge. And I would say I saw it in sales and customer service as well. And I think, I honestly think that at the root of it was just not knowing how to use the platform or not knowing much about it. And I found that educating this, our team members is what made adoption that much easier. So what I did was I just had like in, intimate training sessions with customer service and sales and just said, hey, this is for, because they would come to me with questions to try to help customers. And I really wanted to empower them to be like, hey, you guys can help them. Like customer service sales can help use this platform. We can all work together in the sales channel to convert these customers. So I found it was best to sit down and be like, hey, this is how I help the customer through the website. So I think just empowering them with knowledge really got that buy-in. And they said that, hey, this really is a good tool that can help me do my job and help the whole company make a sale. And when the company, you weren't there when they first implemented e-com, but you probably know the history of how it came about in the business. You have to. And did you find that in order to get better buy-in from sales and, and customer service, that the same incentives that were in place and the same KPIs had to be extended to digital channels. In other words, in order to not get resistance, you don't want to feel like you don't want the sales team to feel like they're being replaced. You want to feel like mm -hmm. they're being augmented, that they're being helped, that you're taking a whole bunch of admin pain off their plate so that mm -hmm. they can go out there and they can build relationships and maintain relationships and secure new customers without fear of the digital channel taking money out of their back pocket. So I find that oftentimes it's a matter of the right incentives being in place. And I've seen some brands go so far as to say, if you secure sales through a digital channel, you'll get an extra point or two on your commission, for example, versus that physical sale that we manually put into the ERP for fulfillment. And so I've seen all sorts of almost gamification of the adoption internally of e-commerce to then foster external adoption of the platform. And how have you guys helped to put rest, help rest aside the concerns that sales teams often have that the pathway for e-commerce is replacing them as opposed to helping augment them? Yeah, I think we're fortunate because we are a small team as well. So we're not managing a large outside sales team. So it wasn't a big undertaking to get their buy-in. But to your point, we, we did not take any commission from them. If it's their customer and the customer has decided to go through the website, the way I explain it to them is it's just the way they're placing the PO. Like that's just the way that they're purchasing. You might be visiting them or they might be chatting us on the website. It's all working towards, the, we're all working towards the same goal. So. We definitely made that a point to say we're not taking any commission away from them. So I think that obviously eases them because they're not losing money on it. It's just giving the customer a little bit more of that self-service power. And it, in return, it makes them happier. If they, it's easier for them to just go online and place the order than to email the order in. Why not give that to your customer? So we were fortunate. Our sales team was is on board. On board from day one. Got to have it. Yeah. And how are you guys finding the potential for a B2B e-commerce to be an acquisition channel as opposed to just a replenishment ordering channel? What I'm seeing kind of an evolution in the market is that a lot of B2B brands perhaps that started out with just an e-commerce portal, meaning you had to authenticate in order to see your prices, in order to see your catalog, it was effectively a gated experience. And I see your website is seems to be a little bit of a hybrid of that. You can see, you can see major components of the catalog. You can see what I assume is your highest 
price tier on the website when you navigate the website. So it appears that you guys have made the jump from purely a gated experience to more of a both long tail SEO benefit experience because your products can actually be indexed by Google because they're not behind a gated experience. But secondarily, can customers who are new to the business that maybe want to create a B2B account, can they create an account through the front end or do they have to go through admin first? You create the account in NetSuite for them and then they can start purchasing. We do it both ways. So they could create the account themselves on the front end, but in order to get like a negotiated price, they'd have to work with our inside team. Yeah, we do both ways. And we found that B2B, even though it is much different than B2C, a lot of these buyers are expecting that B2C experience. So they're going to come to your website. They're not going to see pricing. They're going to go to the next. So if the if our competitors are showing prices, we have to. So yeah, that's what we found and it's been working well so far. It does add another layer of complexity with trying to keep up with price, what prices to show versus internal pricing, negotiated pricing it is a little bit more complicated, but I think that's just the world that we're in right now. And so we have to adapt. And I'm guessing that some of your B2B customers have exclusive products, exclusive ranges, custom engineered products, et cetera. And so one of the other challenges apart from pricing is catalog visibility. So we, yes. what I often see is that a lot of B2B brands that are using the website as a lead gen channel or a customer acquisition channel is they show the most restrictive catalog of all and they show the highest price list basically or the highest price that they have available on any product that becomes the default web price until someone negotiates their own custom pricing or they mm -hmm. or they get put into a, a pricing tier from there or tiered pricing or whatever it happens to be that that they get put on and are you seeing a similar sort of thing where you guys basically are saying okay we're very comfortable showing this subset of our catalog the stuff that we would sell to absolutely anyone that came to buy from us but we're going to restrict the products that are custom to specific customers that have maybe custom designed components, et cetera. And is that one of the additional challenges you guys had getting that over the line internally was saying, hey, we're not going to expose the whole catalog on all these custom products. We're not going to expose these discounted prices. We're going to show the highest price we have available against an item. And that also helps to put salespeople at ease that the wrong thing isn't going to be seen by the wrong customer. Yes, that definitely is a challenge. And we did exactly that. We have standard off the shelf products that we can sell to anybody and the pricing is strategic in that way. And then NetSuite actually has a functionality called personalized catalog views that you can implement if you've got a specific part number with specific pricing for a specific customer so they can log in and see that they're the only ones that can see those part numbers with that pricing. So that functionality is already there, which is very helpful. Yeah, that definitely that native functionality, I guess, is awesome because it becomes part of their, it, the catalog becomes joined to their price list. So they get a unique price list and they get a mm -hmm. unique catalog. So that native functionality of those two being tied together makes for a pretty seamless experience on the front end as well, because you're exposing those exact same authenticated prices through your e-commerce experience as you would through the back end of NetSuite when they're generating an internal PO and either emailing it across or sending it through via EDI. Now, do you guys offer EDI support as well for your bigger customers that want to send a PO directly from their procurement system directly into NetSuite via EDI? Do you support that as well? Do you support any kind of punch out functionality which can integrate into their procurement systems? Or are you purely, from a digital commerce perspective, are you only offering e-commerce today? We do have EDI and I believe we're currently working on expanding that functionality a little bit more, but I don't know too much about that. We don't have punch out, but that is something that's definitely on our radar. We just, we haven't had any clients really ask for it yet, but we think it's just such a 
cool functionality and where the future is going. So it's definitely on the horizon, but we just don't, we're not at that point right now. I guess if e-commerce is only 1% of revenues today, and I don't know, let's say EDI is another, let's just say hypothetically 5%. And if you think you could add another 5% through punch-out functionality because customers are asking for it, well, all of a sudden you could get to maybe 10 or 11% of revenue, which starts to become, that starts to become a pretty significant number pretty quickly. And then all of a sudden mm -hmm. now it's easier to get further buy-in and investment in digital channels. And speaking of channel mix, are you guys doing anything today across B2B marketplaces or any other digital channels? Or is this something you're totally focused on e-com, like owned e-commerce channels as of today? We so we list on some inventory websites that are that market to our industry. So it's basically an inventory listing site and then it links directly to our site. We found good success on that as well. And then we I'm actually in the process of onboarding Amazon right now just because we've seen that a lot of buying experiencing is starting at Amazon, even on the B2B side, which I thought was a little surprising actually when I'm seeing that data and I'm like, wow. You wouldn't think that would be the place that B2B buyers were, would be starting, but it really is. So we have to enable, in order to compete, we have to be in that, in those marketplaces. So we're looking at Amazon and then there's also some industry specific marketplaces such as DigiKey that we might look into as well. But that again is in the future. Love it. Yeah. I recently saw an article in Reuters, I think it was about two months ago, talking specifically about Europe and how Amazon business, which is the B2B side of Amazon, how they were seeing such explosive growth during the pandemic and then off the back of the pandemic for B2B purchasers to start their search in Amazon, that they saw massive category gaps in terms of product representation. They didn't, they were, in this article, they were speaking specifically about Europe, but I'm sure it's very similar in the United States as well. They were saying, look, we have identified like 25 categories of, of products that we have virtually no B2B supplier representation in. And they were specifically going out and trying to find B2B suppliers of these products and looking to expand their B2B uh, infrastructure from a logistics perspective to support those brands that were shipping cartons, pallets, and containers versus individual items through FBA. FBA as a proposition for B2B is a totally different proposition than it is for B2C, D2C. It has to be, right? Because of the volumes being shipped. And so I took that to as a very clear sign that Amazon wants to grow the Amazon business side of their business significantly over the next decade. And is, are these the kind of conversations you're having with Amazon and, and saying, look, guys, you know, there's not a lot of representative, representation of our types of products here, but there is the demand. We can help you fill that demand. Yeah, definitely. When like researching to see if we should be on there, just searching some of the products that we thought might we might want to sell in there, a lot of them came up that kind of like knockoffs of the brand that we distribute. So there's definitely a like a gap there to have the authenticated products trusted products from trusted manufacturers sold on Amazon. And Amazon, I guess, has built up the traffic side of it. So it's not like you've got to go out there and you've got to do extensive SEO, SEM work. You don't have to do extensive social work mm -hmm. or you've got, to, you've got to hemorrhage a percentage to them in terms of selling fees and listing fees, etc. And especially if you want to do PPC on Amazon, then that's going to have a cost associated with it. But because they're already generating a substantial amount of traffic to their platform, at least from a, a sourcing perspective and a CAC perspective, it's all rolled up into the costs of doing business on Amazon. And as long as you've got, as long as you've got some element of pricing power, then 
you can do very well on Amazon. I guess if you are just another knockoff seller of a product and you have zero pricing power and it's a race to the bottom, then it's a totally different story. But in your case, you're selling name branded products that are very well respected, very much in demand. And especially if you've got exclusive distributorship of some of these individual components, then that puts you in the driver's seat to represent that brand in region. Yeah, that's what we're hoping for sure. We'll see like how it goes, but I think, I honestly think it's going to be a great channel for us to your point. Like it, there is a lot of work that people don't see on with SEO and trying to get your products in a highly competitive mar- marketplace, you know, on these, at on the search engine to your point. Yeah. Amazon does that work for you a little bit, as long as you are positioned correctly, have the right information images, stock, all of those factors, it should be a good sales channel. Very nice. And how do you guys see fulfillment working in the Amazon channel? Or is that sort of TBC? Are you still thinking we're going to ship direct from our location, our warehouse, and we're going to ship nationwide? Or are we going to try to partner with Amazon because of some of those fulfillment promises? You know, I know Prime doesn't extend to business sales, but obviously you've got a certain expectation when people buy through Amazon of how fast it's going to get to you. And at least for a fulfillment promise from you guys you got to put that out there of the expected delivery time of a product and you got to hit that every time. Otherwise, Amazon's going to nail you for it. So how do you see the logistical challenges of meeting Amazon's expectations around fulfillment? Yeah, so it is still to be determined, but I foresee us using at least starting with Amazon fulfillment and seeing how that goes. Just to take advantage of that two-day prime shipping, I think it would be beneficial to us hopefully from what I'm thinking to separate that out and have some stock that they manage for us and they ship out to those customers that are working through Amazon. If it starts getting blowing up and it starts being a good uh, good channel for us, I think that we would have our fulfillment as a backup or perhaps switch. I think that our shipping is really great and I think we could keep up with some of that that fast shipping that Amazon promises, but that's the plan. My tentative plan right now is to use utilize the fulfillment because Amazon also will give you preferential treatment. If you are using their services, you're bumped up. If you're a prime person, like your products are going to be more visible in that way. So I think to put us out on the right step and the right foot, I would, I'm going to start with the Amazon fulfillment. Yeah, totally makes sense. Now, that's one of the other beautiful things about NetSuite. I'm a big NetSuite proponent. I've worked with it for years. Absolutely love it. And one of the other great things about NetSuite is being able to natively manage inventory and locations all within the one platform. So you can have a location in NetSuite that's your Amazon location and the inventory that's in Amazon is represented in NetSuite. So you have a single view of inventory. You have a single view of inventory in transit, both inbound and outbound and on-site. Now, do you guys, in addition to your own warehouse and potentially Amazon, because you guys, because as far as I understand it, you only have one warehouse and it's based in Wisconsin. Is that right? Your single warehouse? No, we have we have two warehouses. One is in Elmhurst, Illinois, the west suburbs of Chicago, and then we also have a Mexican facility in Chihuahua, Mexico. Wow, which is where I'm based in Mexico now. Moved here yeah. in February with my oh, wife. Wow. So love Mexico. And do you guys also find that you need to work or considering working with 3PLs in other parts of the country to help speed up the time of getting components to customers? Or are they less perhaps time sensitive than your, your standard customer? Are they a little bit more tolerant of a little longer shipping time than someone who wants it basically yesterday? Yeah, we found that we work mostly with our customer. It's like customer routed. So they tell us exactly what 
they want to use on what accounts they want to use. And that's what our sales guys prefer as well. So it's mostly customer routed. So it's effectively FOB. So they've got their own carrier that they work with. And effectively, mm -hmm. they'll arrange to have that carrier collect the goods from your warehouse and then get it to them however way they're going to get it there because they get a great price through their carrier relationships. Right. Makes total sense. These are the types of things. I know I'm, I sound like I'm getting into the minutiae here, but these are the types of things that literally a lot of B2B brands just don't think about when they're looking at setting up e-commerce. They don't think about the 101 thing checklist that they're going to need to translate from the way that they do things today in a more maybe analog manual way that where the salespeople just, they know how everything works and they just organize it all directly in the ERP. Or maybe they take a PO via CSV that's attached to an email and then they upload that into NetSuite on behalf of the customer. When they're trying to translate all of these business processes, even things like request a quote and approve a quote, and here's the volumetric pricing, and here's the price break at thresholds, here's the MOQs we're going to apply, all these things that salespeople just deal with because they've always dealt with it and it's second nature to them. And it's second nature for them to ask these questions of the customer when they onboard them into the business. And even things like credit stop and your know, credit limits and net trading terms and all those things. They sound simple when you say them fast, but when you're trying to translate those from knowledge in a salesperson's head or maybe a piece of information in some system somewhere or in some spreadsheet somewhere, first of all, you got to translate that into your ERP. Then you have to translate that into a fully digitally assisted experience. And like I said, it sounds like I'm asking these really esoteric questions, but they all dramatically impact the customer experience through e-commerce, especially from a messaging perspective and what you're communicating to the customer that you're saying you're going to deliver and when and at what price, that becomes a really critical part of the CX of the website. That is exactly how I come up with like my next list of customizations on the site. I literally go down and say, okay, what do we do for customers on the back end that we can't do for the customers on the website right now? Like it's like a great starting spot, starting point. You want to give that exact same experience, if not better on the website that you are doing person to person through sales and through customer service. So it's a great way to look at it. And to your point, it then creates this long list of things that you have to really think about before just going out and launching a B2B site. So I totally agree. And how, as I understand it, this was your first B2B gig full stop. And really you cut your teeth on the B2B space. You didn't cut your teeth on the B2C space, you cut your teeth on the B2B space. And so not only did you have to upskill on all the e-com things that you need to know and be able to manage partners and be able to parcel out specific work that you want to own internally versus handing that off to partners, creating your technical roadmaps, doing the initial BRD, the requirements gathering internally for your launch on, on sweet commerce, and then also liaising with your internal team and being the middle person that's, that sits between sales, customer service, agencies, other part, integration partners, et cetera. So you, the piggy in the middle, so to speak, where you've got to try to keep everybody happy and you've got to translate business requirements into technical requirements. So you've got to be reasonably technical, but you also ha have to understand the nuances of B2B business to begin with. And it's so different 
to B2C land where, you know, on the B2C land, they're so focused on marketing automation. They're so focused on personalization. They're focused on enterprise site search. They're focused on search and merch. The search and merch aspects are so tightly tied together. They're focused on so many things that they're focused on the post-purchase experience and the order success page and then upselling and cross-selling and all these other things that B2C land is so heavily focused on. Whereas I find in the B2B world, yes, that is a focus to a degree, but more importantly, it's how we translate those, you know, how do we bring a very B2C like experience, but layer all of that additional B2B functionality on top of that so that it's super easy and almost frictionless for somebody to buy through us. And so you had, a, am guessing, a very steep learning curve in the beginning of your work with this business because you had to understand B2B in a really nuanced way. Plus, you had to upskill on e-com. So, wow, what a steep <laughs> learning curve. Yeah, I was fortunate. So I've been with Chief for my entire career. I was fortunate in that way that I do understand the business very well. And I was cross-trained in customer service. I've done some compliance work. And we're a small company. I know I've said that before. It's easy for me, or it was easy for me to know how the business worked and those different departments. And so our across department communication is really good. So when it was time to say, okay, we need to do this e-commerce platform, I had that background knowledge. I knew exactly like who Chief was and our value that we brought to the customer from a non-digital side of things. So the challenge was take, like just gathering all that information and knowledge and trying to get it to the front end. And then to your point, yes, learning e-commerce trends and learning the platform and the technical side of things. And I think it was just, it was just experience, like going through multiple platform changes. That was really helpful. And just learning on the job, I would say on the job training is like the best training. It certainly is. That's exactly how I've learned throughout my career. And you can't go to university and get a degree in e-com. So you can get no. a commerce degree, you can get a business degree, you can get an IT degree, but you can get a computer science degree, but you can't get an e-com degree. So right. those of us that I think hopefully are succeeding in the industry, we had to fly by the seat of our pants for a while and just be really comfortable with being uncomfortable and being really mm -hmm. comfortable with not knowing everything, but figuring out how to figure it out. And I think that all the great people that I know in this industry, they're all self-taught or they've been, they've had the privilege of working underneath some really great leaders who are also self-taught that they could hand down and pass on the baton from one mm -hmm. person to the next of what they knew. And from my experience, the only way you can learn in this industry is by doing, because there's no, sure, there's books that can help, especially on marketing, et cetera. But when it comes to the operational and technical side of e-commerce, you just have to do it. Definitely. I totally agree. It's trial and error. It's talking to resources, developers, like, this is what I want it to look like. How can we make it look like that? We're also fortunate that we have a NetSuite expert that we hired direct. So our director of IT has a rich NetSuite background. So he's very, he's a great resource and he comes from the consulting side of things. So he's seen a lot of different businesses, worked with a lot of dis different businesses. That's great. Just, yeah, surrounding yourself with people that have done it before or through trial and error and then just trying to do it yourself and see what works and what doesn't is really the best advice that I could give. Okay, here's an important question for you. Have you ever been to Sweet World? I have not, but I have watched the videos. Sometimes they live stream them. I don't know if you saw the, or if you were there when they had that one rapper performer. Like oh, no, was, I, he, I was there. I think it was 2017, I think was the year that I went. And it was like a rock concert. It literally was yeah. like a rock concert. 
Yeah, I don't know. I can't remember the exact reform, but it was, I remember watching that. We had it streaming at our office. We all got a kick out of that. It was funny, but I haven't been, I've wanted to go though. It's about time. I should go. I can highly recommend it. Obviously, Vegas is crazy and fun at the, at, at the worst of times. You're always going to have fun in Vegas, but then you layer on top of that all the NetSuite zealots and you get them all in one room. I've never seen so many CPAs go as wild as I have <laughs> at a NetSuite event. The number of CFOs that, that come to these events, because you know, oftentimes NetSuite is driven by the CFO or the financial right. controller in a business. They're the ones that kind of pull the trigger on a new ERP system because it becomes the financial beating heart of the business. But man, those people know how to let their ha hair down and party at a NetSuite event. I can tell oh, you from firsthand awesome. experience. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to try to go this year or next. And what would be your, if someone was staring down the barrel of doing B2B e-commerce for the very first time, is surprisingly, there's still many businesses, many legacy businesses working in legacy industries and legacy categories that have never done e-commerce before, or maybe they set up an e-commerce in some server room. 10 years ago, and they've never really thought about it since. And now all of a sudden they're going, oh God, actually we were really hamstrung during COVID. We really need to think about this e-com thing. What would be your recommendation in the first one, two, three steps as they are starting to consider adding e-commerce as a channel to their business? How can they set themselves up for success in those very early consideration stages? Yeah, I think a first and foremost would be realizing that it is more than just a sales channel it's really it really helps with you know the whole funnel so even if you still have sales and you're not seeing like immediate success from e-commerce you the customers might be interacting with your site in other ways they might be downloading a data sheet or they might be looking at stock before they make that purchase through the normal channels so realizing that it is not just a sales channel it's really helping you market your business and helping your other channels as well i think that's the first thing. And then second would be to really take a look at your product data and make sure that you've got all the data clean, all as much information as you can about the SKUs that you have would really set you up for success because you're just going to be backlogging anyway. And trust me, I'm going through that right now. It's a pain, but it really is something that needs to be done. That's not something that's not to say that you can't in tandem start launching some of the technical framework and the stack that you need to um, launch the site. It's just keep that in mind that product information is probably the most important thing when it comes to B2B because that's what people need. They need information in order to make that purchase. So that product data images, all of that would be like number one, I think. I would 100% agree. That's oftentimes when I go in, the first thing that I look at, I ask for a sample of their product data. And I will know straight away whether they are anywhere close to being ready for digital channels just by looking at a sample of the product data. Right. And the other thing that I also find is that oftentimes B2B businesses struggle to understand, A, the difference between structured and unstructured product data and how that's going to impact their business and their ability to merchandise and sell online. But two, they might inherently know, but they don't understand the impact of the fact that things like price are an attribute of the customer, not the product in the B2B world. Whereas in the world, price is an attribute of the product because there's only mm -hmm. one price for the product. Whereas 
price is an attribute of the customer. And so I think when you look at the combination of the complexity of the product data to do e-commerce combined with the complexity of the customer data to do e-commerce right. So, you know, you might have a senior buyer, a junior buyer, and then a procurement specialist that has to sign off on orders within B2B land. You have these kind of tiered account systems in the B2B world that you just don't exist. You've got one person, one account in the B2C world. And so I think when we combine product data with customer data and how those impact the customer customer experience on the front end, if that isn't really clean data, at least structurally speaking, then you're never going to be able to get live. It might be in build on the front end piece, and they might even nine months down the track, they might be ready to launch. But if your data is not ready to go, you cannot launch. So mm-hmm. I totally 100% agree with you that data full stop is the enabler of e-commerce. And it's even harder to get that data correct in the B2B world than it is in the D2C world. Because oftentimes in, yeah, the, in the B2C world, that data is supplied by the supplier. Right, it's amazing like trying to find some of this information working with some manufacturers. Like they, you sometimes have to go on like a PDF data sheet and find what you're looking for. It's really difficult. But to your point, no one else is doing it. Like you have to be the one that's organizing this data in a digestible way for the customer in a digital setting. Absolutely. And especially if you're reliant on your ERP and you're selling products with variants, for example, then the way that you structure that in your ERP becomes mission critical, especially if you don't have a PIM sitting between your ERP and your e-commerce platform. In the NetSuite world, the big question is, do we do matrix items or don't we? Do we link Mm -hmm. them together via custom field instead of a matrix? And how do we then present that on the front end if there's multiple variants of a product that we want to show on the same PDP? So there's a lot to think about and to get organized well in advance of you ever starting to scope that new e-commerce, that shiny new e-commerce solution mm-hmm. that everybody thinks is going to be the silver bullet. There's no such thing yeah. as a silver bullet at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing, like how you want to organize your catalog. Like it's things you have to think of before that you don't think of and you're like, oh, but if you're on the front end and it's a mess, like it all comes back to customer or user experience. So another good thing to do is look at your competitors or look at websites that you are like, wow, I enjoy shopping on that. Look at what they're doing. Why not? Yeah, we're definitely seeing, I think, a lot more cross-pollination from the C world conceptually into the B2B world. And I think from an information architecture perspective, the B2C, D2C world tends to do information architecture really well and filterable attributes and faceting and all of the information Mm -hmm. that you put on the product page and all that sort of stuff. I think the B2C, D2C world has done that pretty well for a pretty long time. And I think we're going to continue to steal ideas from that space to continue to make the B2B experience more B2C-like over time. Exactly. Totally. Yep. I totally agree. Look, Jess, this has been absolutely amazing conversation. Look, you've got this deep experience in B2B. It's the only experience you've had, which is amazing because very few people that I come into contact with in the B2B e-commerce world come from the B2B world. They Nine times out of 10, they come from the B2C world and then have to learn all the new stuff about B2B, but you had the benefit of, of being in B2B. Do you see yourself at this stage, do you see yourself staying in B2B land? You, I'm guessing you probably won't necessarily be with with your company forever, but maybe you will, maybe you'll finish your career there, I don't know. But if you were to leave your company for whatever reason, would you like to stay in the B2B world or would you like to dip your toes more in the D2C world? Or if you really now... You've got this specialization in B2B that you're like, man, I'm going to hang on to this with both hands. Yeah, I would say the B2C side is tempting. It does seem very exciting and new. But when I think about like my next step, I feel like that B2B experience that I have, I feel 
very confident in that. So it gives me like an edge, like I feel comfortable talking about it. Like to your point, I've been here my whole career. So I feel like I know the space very well. So I tend to gravitate towards opportunities like that because um, that's just where my experience is. So. Yeah, and the, the fact that you don't really have to worry about CAC and CLVs and AOVs and all, all these other metrics that are so heavily B2C focused and they're so marketing focused as opposed to operationally and technically focused, that's the distinction I would make. And so if you've mm -hmm. come from a very operationally heavy background and a very technically heavy background like you have, it's really difficult to transition to, okay, this is our primary sales channel or a significant sales channel. And we're going to go out and acquire customers through this channel. This is maybe a channel that they're the only channel that they'll ever shop with us through. It's not going to be 1% of our sales. It's going to be 95% of our sales or 100% mm -hmm. of our sales if they're not on any channel. It's a totally different discussion. It's almost a totally different skill set to be able to bring to the table. So I think you're yeah. making the right, the right decision. I think specialization is a superpower and it feels like you, you've done that for the whole of your career. Yeah, I appreciate that. Listen, it has been awesome chatting with you. We're now at the time where we're coming to the close of our time together. And now this is where I have a chance to flip the script. I have a chance to hand the microphone over to you. Let me, you ask me one question, any question you like. So Jess Herzog, what is your question for me today, please? Sure. I like, and I'm surprised we didn't even really touch on this, but I'd like to hear from you what you're seeing in the AI space and like what you're most excited about when it comes to AI in e-commerce. Absolutely. So I, I think that there's two parts to this answer that I'll give. First of all, I just had a Mentoring Moments episode that I released with Ryan Imlach, and they're running NetSuite inside their business. They're not running it on the front end, but they're running it on the back end. They recently implemented NetSuite. They only went live with it at the end of 2022. And he is using ChatGPT to help him write custom suite script. And so instead of having wow. to go back to instead of having to go back to his NetSuite partner every single time he wants something custom written or an automation or a custom saved search or anything like that, if he wants something custom done with SuiteScript, he didn't want to have to be completely beholden to his NetSuite partner for every tiny little thing. He wanted mm -hmm. to be able to take that on board and own that internally himself. And what he's found is that 99% of the time, he can go to ChatGPT, he can describe what he wants to happen. ChatGPT will spit out the suite script. He can implement it directly in NetSuite and it just works. And wow. so I think that's an example of where simple things like administrating some of these platforms, it doesn't just have to be NetSuite, but it's just one example of where you can, instead of having to outsource and not only spend money with, but also wait for partners to deliver certain pieces of functionality, you can now start taking a higher level of ownership internally around these things without having to have a gun administrator internally to do everything for you. And so I think that's a big change that's really yet to make its presence really truly felt in the e-commerce mm -hmm. and ERP space. But the second thing I would say is that the vast majority, I'd say in excess of 95, 98% of merchants are not going to implement AI directly in their business. They're going to acquire AI through the platform partners that they already have. So when we think of NetSuite, for example, I know that NetSuite is working hard behind the scenes to bring their AI demand planning engine that whole AI layer, they want to bring it over the top of the normal NetSuite demand planning engine. And they're doing that across the whole suite of Oracle products, not just NetSuite. And so basically, NetSuite is benefiting from the wider Oracle suite of AI products and then adapting that to the NetSuite platform. And I'm seeing that across 
almost every single component in the commerce stack, all the way from CDP, PIM, CRM, point of sale, system integration, everything, almost every single player that's significant in the market, they are introducing AI features in their stack, even platforms like Gorgeous for customer service, even platforms like Zendesk. What we're seeing today is we're seeing AI and large language models being applied to knowledge bases to keep them up to date so that if you implement a chatbot, for example, you don't have to manually train it and you don't have to manually update it when you add a new page to your knowledge base. It automatically updates and indexes all that information in real time and digests it through that large language model. And so from my perspective, most brands, unless they're, if they're a hundred million dollar brand a year in GMV or bigger, then maybe I could see where they might consume an AI model directly from somebody like Amazon as a service and then run it across their technology or they might implement a open source large language model across their data set and then expose that in a unique way through their digital experiences. But I think the smaller brands than that, it's very difficult to see a time or a place, at least in the near future, where they can implement AI directly. They need partners who have made that yeah. part of the stack that they can consume as just a part of the service and a value add part of that service. I agree. It's just so overwhelming, like thinking about all the ways you can use it. And unless you're like really have that site to like, to like hone that, how powerful it is and to implement it, I totally agree with you. Like you need like a partner that kind of understands it. At least that's how I feel when I think about all the possibilities that you can use it for. Yeah. And look, I wouldn't be surprised sometime in the next six to 12 months, it wouldn't surprise me if NetSuite themselves integrate ChatGPT or a large language model inside NetSuite, inside the suite script function to where you will be able to just tell it what you want it to do. And it will write that script for you inside of NetSuite instead of having to copy and paste out of ChatGPT into NetSuite. It'll just be built right into the platform. I could see that becoming a reality too. That would be amazing for trying to make searches, save searches in NetSuite. Like, this is what I'm trying to get to. Just make it for me. I mean, that's the thing about NetSuite. The save search functionality is so incredibly powerful, but it is a little bit complex at the same time. And so, yeah, if you could have somebody to hold your hand, effectively Mm -hmm. effectively a virtual assistant holding your hand, and you could use normal English to just say, I want you to spit this out to me, and I want you to create this as a save search for me, then, man, that would make life a hell of a lot easier. Because really, you almost need a NetSuite admin now to help you create those. Yeah, I was just talking to a colleague earlier today about it. She was doing some NetSuite search training with some of our teams in, in our company. And she's they're asking me questions like, how do you know which type to use, which type of inventory to use? And she was asking me like what I do. And I was like, I don't know, I just know. I just, it's, you're making searches all the time. How do I decide what type I want? And you just know it. And it's such a bad answer, but it's like, you do it so much that you learn like, I want to make, I want to search for inventory items or assembly items. I don't know. It's just, it's funny. It's a funny NetSuite. Yeah. (laughs) That's the power of the human neural network, right? That's the power of making these connections. That AI is still not quite a hundred percent there yet, but it's getting there fast with the help of us humans training our robot overlords. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it has been such a fantastic time chatting with you. I've seriously enjoyed this. And thank you for being so open and honest about kind of your experience in the B2B space, what you're seeing, how you've helped to build out this capability within your business and how you're contributing back to the business and helping people get fired up and excited about the adoption of e-com inside your B2B business. So thank you so much for your time. And I'd love to get you back on again in the future and chat further about what you've done in the meantime. 
If you're into B2B commerce and you would like to be a guest on B2B Commerce Corner, simply go to ecommerceedge.net, click on more info, then click on be a guest and fill out your details and we will get back to you straight away.